0: Welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. J.F. Martel. In 1917, the French visual artist Marcel Duchamp bought a porcelain urinal, turned it 90 degrees, signed it Mutt, and submitted it to the Society of Independent Artists exhibition in New York City under the title Fountain. Although the organizers rejected the piece, it was widely discussed at the time of the exhibit, and it became something of a legend in the years that followed. So much so that in the 1950s, Duchamp began reproducing the original urinal, which by that time had been lost. The work exists in multiple replicas today, and its immateriality is part of what makes it what it is. Indeed, Duchamp's fountain has become the exemplar of modern art. Its appearance is seen as that moment of upheaval when art finally went full critical, becoming a fundamentally political and discursive enterprise. In this episode, Phil and I discuss the profound effect that Duchamp's famous gesture has had on the development of art in the 20th and 21st centuries. As you'll see, it's something we both feel quite passionate about. We hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: I was driving around yesterday it was a beautiful fall day and i was playing the well-tempered clavier which i love bach you know it's one of my great enthusiasms in life and i'm just driving around listening to well-tempered clavier and i just love that fucking music so much and it's just like how it was making me feel it's like the feeling of like a beloved grandparent giving you a hug or, mm-hmm. or your mom giving you a hug or like hugging your child You know, they're all, like, bathed, and then they're footy pajamas, and they smell real nice. And (laughs) it's just like, you know that wonderful feeling when you're, like, hugging them and putting them to bed? Like, that's how I felt. And I was just sort of like, it's not only right to say that I love this music. This music loves me. Right, right. That's something that I look for in art or something that, no, I can't say I look for it because it either happens or it doesn't, just like love. But it's art that loves you back. Roger Scruton,
0: my favorite conservative theorist of art, I think what you just said would resonate with him. Because what he says, basically, is that through art, there is kind of this mutual recognition among humans. That we recognize each other's faces through art, and we recognize the face of God through art. So that art occurs in a kind of space of love. Agape, right? That kind of like uh, higher or more spiritualized love that Christianity innovated or like brought into the world of thought. So I I know what you mean. And and that's kind of what that's one of the things that I would have liked to say in the Kubrick episode that we did recently. It's that when you're seeing all the care that was put in, like I was listening to the episode we did on Eyes Wide Shut with Leslie, my wife, and You were talking about how the article in the paper that Tom Cruise finds, we see it just for a few seconds, but you were, you'd taken a screenshot and you're reading the snippets of other articles on the edges of the frame and noticing that even they had been meticulously designed for the viewer to draw meaning from the film. And she got teary-eyed just thinking about that, about the level of care that he put into his work so that you were completely saturated with meaning and significance while watching it it's funny because usually people see this tendency in kubrick as a kind of aloof uh, almost autistic obsession on his part like this profound self-indulgent streak he has when in fact you could just as easily interpret it as this tremendous care and respect he has for his viewer right yeah um and how is that different from a kind of love at least a recognition of the power of the artwork to bring people together. Um, yeah. Even if it's bringing people together in a kind of horror or weirdness or estrangement from from things, there's still this um, deep, affective resonance that occurs.
1: Yeah. So while we're talking, I've got a... Okay, you know the poet Philip Larkin? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. He was a jazz critic. I don't know if you knew that. I knew that, but I haven't read any of his criticism. Yeah, it's been collected in a book that is long out of print called All What Jazz. And the introduction to it is really interesting because he's basically disavowing much of what he writes or much of what has been collected in that book. And he says basically, you know, I loved, 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 absolutely fucking loved jazz before World War II. You know, when he was a young man at college. And as we're talking like old-time music, a lot of stuff that a lot of contemporary jazz fans would dismiss as novelty records or kind of corny, oldie timey jazz. Um, and he talks about the modernist turn in jazz after World War II. Famously, there was a period where jazz was not being recorded in the United States because of a, a strike it had to do with music unions and the industrial arrangements around recordings. And what happened famously is that the bebop artists Thelonious Monk, Bud Powell, Max Roach, Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, these sort of like pioneer figures, had spent those years, the sort of later World War II years, woodshedding and developing this new, very complex, much more modernistic style of jazz. And When I say modernistic, not just in that style, but also in the critical discourse that emerged around it to explain it and to justify it, to rationalize it. And Larkin describes this as a disaster, both for him personally and for jazz as a whole, that suddenly he found like nothing whatsoever that he loved about this music. And Larkin himself had a beef with modernism altogether, He talks about his experience suddenly hearing this new flood of records from the United States after the Music Union strike. Had the most original feature of jazz been its use of collective improvisation? Banish it. Let the first and last choruses be identical exercises in low-temperature unison. Was jazz instrumentation based on hawk-shop trumpets, trombones, and clarinets of the returned Civil War regiments? Brace yourself for flutes, harpsichords, electronically amplified bassoons. Had jazz been essentially a popular art full of tunes you could whistle? Something fundamentally awful had taken place to ensure that there should be no more tunes. The problem with this type of critique is that it always comes across
0: as kind of this crotchety old curmudgeon uh, railing against all the kids these days, you know, in my day, that sort of thing. But I think that even that trope, that bringing that up, oh, you're just a cranky old atavistic asshole is in itself a kind of immunological defense mechanism that we would do well to uh, observe more closely before just accepting that critique as a kind of like,
1: yeah, as a valid one. Um, one reason why I like to assign this essay is because he actually there. If you read it carefully, you realize that he is trying to articulate an idea of what it is that modernism does badly. And ultimately, it's the thing that what what I was just saying about like music that loves you back. Yeah. This is a passage that I always read to the students. He writes at the end, and this is a whole paragraph, my readers, sometimes I wonder whether they really exist. Sometimes I imagine them, sullen, fleshy, inarticulate men, stockbrokers, sellers of goods, living in thirty-year-old detached houses among the golf courses of outer London, husbands of aging and bitter wives they first seduced to Archie Shaw's Begin the Begin, or the Squadronaires' The Nearness of You, fathers of cold-eyed, lascivious daughters on the pill to whom Ramsay MacDonald is coeval with Ramsay's II and cannabis-smoking, jeans-and-bearded, stuart-haired sons whose oriental contempt for bread is equaled only by their insatiable demand for it. Men in whom a pile of scratched, coverless 78s in the attic can awaken memories of vomiting blindly from small Tudor windows to Muggsy Spaniard's sister Kate or winding up a gramophone in a punt to play Armstrong's body and soul. Men whose first coronary is coming like Christmas, who drift loaded helplessly with commitments and obligations and necessary observances into the darkening avenues of age and incapacity deserted by everything that once made life sweet these i have tried to remind of the excitement of jazz and tell where it may still be found he is imagining for us very beautifully the kind of life of quiet desperation of a guy who finds himself adrift from everything as Larkin says that once made life sweet and the line that I couldn't find it's there somewhere is something to the effect that all of the supposed consolations or all of the supposed benefits of modernism are empty and vain because they help us neither enjoy nor endure And enjoyment and endurance is what he's talking about in that wonderful passage imagining the London stockbroker in his 30-year-old house in outer London, uncomprehending of and uncomprehended by his own family, and suddenly feeling himself completely adrift from his youth, which seems like that just happened yesterday— And I like to point out to my students, you may not understand this now, but you will. One day, you'll remember this passage and that I made a big deal of it. Because life is hard. And regardless of what a consumer society tells us, there's no pill for that. You know, at a certain point, you can't just get more stuff and keep easing the pain. At a certain point, you are going to be left at the rope end, like hanging on for dear life, wondering what the fuck happened. And at that point, the sort of clever, clever mental philosophical games that a lot of modernist art plays or postmodernist art plays, that's all very well, but it is going to be entirely beside the point. It will not speak at all of the situation, the undignified existential situation you now find yourself in. And in that situation, enjoyment is not some kind of trivial pleasure it's what you have left right and endurance is pretty much the most you can hope for to endure Mm. enjoyment is not a trivial thing feelings of pleasure feelings of love you know I always am struck by academics, in particular, who love to make nihilistic noises, who love to adopt some kind of post-Foucauldian nihilism, some idea that all is power and that to speak of love and enjoyment and so on is always some feeble mask over some center of constituted power. People who like to imagine that there is no transcendence, no beauty, nothing whatsoever, if you actually believed that, you would just shoot yourself in the fucking head. But these motherfuckers don't really believe that. They just like to say it because it makes them look cool. To me, the affectation of this fashionable nihilism is the privilege of people who enjoy robust mental health. Because if you're actually depressed, if you were actually really up against it in the way that Larkin is imagining his stockbroker, that is a luxury you can't afford. Mm. You know, what you are left with is whatever fleeting enjoyment life can offer and whatever can allow you to simply endure. I realize that sounds pretty fucking dark, but... You know, when I look at Fountain, I've taught Duchamp and his ready maids. I've even really dug these ideas in the past. But sometimes I look at it and I just think how trivial and empty and pointless this culture is. And how much we like to mock anybody who isn't as... Well, we like to pride ourselves on being so tough and cynical that we can see the demolition of the very idea of art in the form of this urinal hanging in a gallery somewhere and chuckle at the idea of demolishing art. Increasingly, I just look at that and I think, you fucking assholes, it's easy to renounce something that you don't care about in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were gonna be the pro side today. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not in the mood to be the pro side. Okay, well you then, know, there's a, there is a positive. There is a way to recuperate Duchamp's fountain, and we've done it before on this show. That and it's basically how John Cage understood Duchamp. That you can take an ugly utilitarian item. You can take anything and viewed subspecia eternitatis, a view from eternity, it can become incredibly beautiful. There's a story of Kafka's, I think, I read about it, but I've never read it, about somebody who is dead and is restored to life for five seconds, and the only thing he gets to see is a dog urinating on a hydrant, and he bursts into tears at the beauty of the sight. And, And maybe that's not a real story, maybe that's just like... Maybe somebody made it up, in which case it's just a Borgesian-like story about a story, but it's a great story about a story. I think there is a way of recuperating these acts of reframing the trivial and the mundane to make them beautiful, but I'm not in the mood to make that argument today because everybody makes that argument. Everybody wants to stick up for these sort of nihilistic artistic gestures, and when I look at the wastage of the art world you know if i don't know if you've ever read daniel close art school confidential this little eight-page comic just trashing the fraudulence of modern art school education you know you see the the wreckage of what used to be an honorable craft and a skill that people would learn and say you know fucking duchamp did this Not him alone, but, you know, that kind of thing like, hey, I can take any piece of shit. I can take a literal piece of shit and frame it and put it in an art museum. I've been to museums where I have seen fecal smears on pieces of cloth framed and hanging on the wall. And it's all... People Just doing some version of the Duchamp thing. Hey, look, I put some shit behind a frame and now it's art. Yeah, (laughs) it's the same shit. I remember once seeing an exhibition dedicated to Duchamp's fountain. Somebody had made his own version of it, which was a bathtub full of scummy, disgusting water. And he had painted around the lip of the bathtub. Ever since Duchamp, all the avant-garde has been soaking in the same bathwater of the same bathtub. I believe that was the line. And it's so true. And you can say, wait, isn't that true of your little bathtub? And, of course, the artist would be like, yeah, that's the point. This endless, stupid triviality that manifests in the appalling spectacle of people still like propping up the moldering corpse of punk. Right, You know, 50 fucking years later, and we're still acting as if punk is some kind of artistic revolution. We're like fucking Civil War reenactors trying to grasp that glorious moment of transgression where a bunch of dudes who couldn't play their fucking instruments take them on stage and do their shit and defy you to say, that sounds like shit. So they can say, yeah, that's the point. Fuck that shit. Fuck that whole move. That entire move that Duchamp made possible. Fuck that shit. Well, I'm glad we agree. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to provoke you, but but, uh, no. but my plan fell flat because you just agreed with me. I totally agree with you. But I think we can go some
0: ways into exploring why this is or what exactly is going on here. And... Uh, my bit won't be as um, charged as yours because I'll be doing a little bit of very light theory. But I think that it'll be helpful in understanding what is going on in this move. I was glad that you suggested doing an episode on Zushan on Fountain because last week, was it last week, two weeks ago, Banksy pulled that stunt at Sotheby's, mm, in, Sotheby's yeah. in London where he sold his famous girl with balloon painting and then... At the moment that the mallet struck the frame that the painting was in, sh- like activated shredded itself it. as a shredder and shredded the painting. It didn't quite work as he hoped; it, it stopped halfway. And of course, in its infinite cynicism, the art world has now re- immediately after this happened, these appraisers were basically th- speculating on how much value the painting would gain from this
1: stunt. All of a sudden, it was worth like two
0: million or. You know. So there's no, there's no way there's
1: no escape from that shit. Yeah. There's no, Th- That way. reminds me of Bill Hicks. Wonderful bit about like he starts off telling, yeah. Marketers should just go kill themselves. Oh, you know what Bill's doing now? He's going for the righteous indignation dollar. That's a big dollar. A lot of people are feeling that indignation. We've done research, huge market. He's doing a good thing. God damn it. I'm not doing that. You scumbags. Quit putting a goddamn dollar sign on every fucking thing on this planet. Ooh, the anger dollar, huge. Yeah, no matter what you do, you're caught in this fucking web. Ooh, the trapped dollar, big dollar, huge dollar.
0: Yeah, and, and the art world is never... You, you can never surprise it, because surprise is the norm. You know, but it's like That's right. this type of... It's a prefab form of shock or surprise. I love that piece he described, The Bathtub, because, in a sense, the moment Duchamp put the urinal in the gallery the shit-smeared painting was scripted in there. It was all of the – everything that came after was already kind of uh, virtually present in that first gesture because all that that gesture performs is a reaction to expectation. So every artist then tries to best the last one and be more shocking. And I know that that's a kind of facile interpretation of what's going on in conceptual art. But I think that that's the danger that happens the minute you raise the concept above the affect in art. I think that's essentially what is technically going on with Duchamp. He himself said that he wanted to change the focus of art from the physical craft to the intellectual idea. For me, what that means is that Duchamp raised the concept above affect, which I think was, was operative in art throughout and still is. I think that's what art is. I don't think that concept art is art at all. It's not doing what art does. It's about an idea of art. Yeah. In preparation for this recording, I reread um Arthur Danto's famous essay, The Art World. Have you ever read that one?
1: Yeah, but like yeah. literally decades ago, I remember right. nothing about it. It's
0: an incredibly influential piece of writing. So Danto's a philosopher who's trying to work out what art is and he says that in the past there have been different theories so the first theory the Greeks came up with what he calls IT the imitative theory of art which is that art was a mirror held to the world art represents things in the world and lets us allows us to look at them from a new angle and then came the I think it was the realistic theory of art something like that and this this comes about with the impressionists and stuff where their paintings don't look like the real thing they're creating something new And then finally, his theory of art is this art world theory, which is that art is whatever the art world decides is art. That's essentially his thesis, is that what makes Andy Warhol's Brillo boxes that he did in plywood, what makes them art, as opposed to the real Brillo boxes, is the fact that a particular community equipped with a theory accepts it as art. Because what the art world does for Danto is it allows for a new form of the verb to be to come into play. He calls it the is of artistic identification. So, for instance, he says, if you point at, you know, Bruegel's painting of Icarus falling. The painting, you see this this dock and you see all these ships moored in the bay. And in the background, very small, you see this little blotch, which is Icarus falling (laughs) in the far deep background of this painting. You could point to that little blotch of paint and say, that's Icarus. Well, in what sense do you mean that is Icarus? You're not saying that that blotch of paint is a person named Icarus. And you're saying it is, but at the same time, you're saying it isn't. So there's this weird special sense in which the the word is is used in art. So the Brillo boxes that Andy Warhol puts up are not actual Brillo boxes but they enter into a space called the art world where they gain this new ontology. But that ontology, it's just an epistemic thing, but within the community that he calls the art world, it gains this meaning. So all that exists for Danto is a conversation about stuff that we call art. And for Danto, an artwork is always charged with a message or commentary. And I don't think Danto could have existed before Duchamp. He thinks he's explaining Duchamp, but I think Duchamp creates him. Mm. Uh, Because what's being denied in Danto is the possibility that art is anything at all. Uh, At one point he writes, he's talking about Andy Warhol's Brillo boxes. Mm -hmm. And he says, what in the end makes the difference between a Brillo box and a work of art consisting of a Brillo box and a certain theory of art? It is the theory that takes it up into the world of art and keeps it from collapsing into the real object which it is. Of course, without the theory one is unlikely to see it as art, and in order to see it as part of the art world one must have mastered a good deal of artistic theory as well as a considerable amount of the history of recent New York painting. It could not have been art fifty years ago, but then there could not have been, everything being equal, flight insurance in the Middle Ages or Etruscan typewriter erasers. The world has to be ready for certain things, the art world no less than the real one. It is the role of artistic theories these days as always to make the art world and art possible. It would, I should think, never have occurred to the painters of Lascaux that they were producing art on those walls, not unless there were Neolithic aestheticians. I find that profoundly problematic because it tells mm. us nothing about what the painters of Lascaux were doing. Yeah, Um. And it seems to me that we can only start talking about whether this or that work is or isn't art if we understand what it was that the painters in Lesko were doing. Because if they were painting images, of course, they didn't call it art. They didn't speak English. (laughs) What they were doing, they were doing something. They were doing something. They were painting pictures. And they were painting pictures because painted pictures do something. And unless we can understand what painted pictures do, we can't talk about what is and isn't art. It seems to me that all the theories of art, including this art world theory, rest on a certain phenomenon that is art itself, which is what happens when you create an image or uh, when you compose a string of sounds that produces a particular aesthetic effect. What is going on there? And modernism says nothing about that. All it's Mm -hmm. doing, the bad modernism we're discussing, is reacting to what has been done. It's like the angel of history in Benjamin that's just looking at what has happened and can't see the future. All it sees is the disaster of the past. The wreckage. It never ever sees anything else. That's part and parcel of thinking through concepts. If you're not thinking through affect but through concept, all you're doing is working with prefab materials. You're always working with opinions that already exist, ideas that are already out there. You're never actually producing something new. And my last point was that the argument for Fountain, which was made right at the beginning after it was exhibited. Actually, it wasn't even exhibited. It was just photographed because it wasn't accepted. It was photographed and published in a journal. And then people started talking about it. And then years and years later, Duchamp was commissioned with producing copies of it. So even it's really hard to even locate where the the artistic performance occurred when you look at Fountain. It's not like this thing was in a gallery and people were visiting it. That never happened until much, much later, until the myth had already been written. But the point is that the defense they gave was that it was rejected because it wasn't made by Duchamp. He didn't make it. It was a case of plagiarism, the people said. And then the defenders of the work said, no, it wasn't. The art doesn't lie in the making. The art lies in the choosing. He chose to put that in the gallery, and that's where the art lies. OK, where all of my research into, and I've done a lot of research into the artistic process, not just because I've created art myself, but also because I've read tons and tons of stuff in writing my book about how artistic creation works. And the last thing that any real artist has ever said about why they created something is that they chose to do it. There's no choice involved in art. I was just listening to an interview with Jonathan Glazer yesterday. He's a fantastic filmmaker. His first film was Sexy Beast. Then he made an amazing film with Nicole Kidman called Birth. And his latest movie is one, I think, hands down, one of the best films of the 21st century so far. It's called Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson. Fantastic movie that we should probably discuss at some point on the show. Yeah. Um, And uh, the guy interviewing him says, well, where do you get your ideas? How do you choose your projects? And he says, I don't choose. I become obsessed with something. I have an idea, then I explore it, and then eventually it gets me. Jung, who worked with a lot of artists in his clinical work, he came up with the theory that even an artist who thinks they're choosing, if you look at their lives, you look at how it all worked out, in fact, they're being swept by currents they can't see. That in artistic creation, choice is at best a kind of illusion. But it's not very hard to look into yourself and say, wow, I, don't, I can't remember the moment where I chose to do this. This process just kind of took over, and then this thing came into the world. Whereas you can't say that about Duchamp's urinal. It's a reactive gesture, and yep. it created a whole section, a whole new discipline in art that consisted of reactive, i.e. conceptual opinions masquerading as works of art. And that has done very little to help us understand what the fuck is going on in art. And it also made it's also made it very, very hard for us to distinguish a work of art from say a fucking
1: advertisement for a car exactly exactly to the extent that I sometimes feel like you know this whole trend and a century long trend in aesthetics has just been a long con of consumer capitalism there's a somewhat crazy and unfortunately deceased composer named Cornelius Cardew who became a Maoist in the 70s and wrote an essay attacking Karl-Heinz Stockhausen and the title of it was Stockhausen Serves Imperialism. And I'm not talking about that essay, but I just love the title. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, Duchamp serves neoliberalism. To Mm -hmm. me, everything I hate about the sort of consumer society we live in is somehow presaged by this one awful idea. There's an essay that I encourage you to read. I love it. It's the title is quite to the point. Punk Rock is bullshit. Hmm. And the absolutely fucking love this essay. It's by a guy named John Roderick who I think is like a punk apostate. He's a musician. And okay, so earlier I was talking about the way punk manages to insulate itself from any kind of criticism, as indeed does this larger strain of conceptualism and art, this kind of conceptual turn. That If you say, that's not art, you say, yeah, that's the point. Or, geez, that really sucks. Or, geez, that's just an empty, slick commercial image. Or anything, you'd be like, yeah, that's the point. So this is what uh, Roderick writes. Whenever I say publicly that punk rock is bullshit, I get two types of response. The first is the predictable sneer. That's the point. Punk rock knows it's stupid. It's trying to be stupid. It's always been stupid. Punk is flaming dog shit in a bag. This mentality accounts for the way punk rock infected us, like an Andromeda strain, how it can simultaneously be an industry of cheap, mass-produced mall fashion for suburban, rebel, team moms, and the governing aesthetic of the smartest middle-aged critics and most discerning skinny-pants fans of music and culture. We are enthralled to a fallacy of irrefutably circular logic, Punk rock only seems like a garbled, negative, ignorant, half-witted worldview because it's actually an intentional indictment of a garbled, negative, ignorant, half-witted world. This incredibly persuasive rationalization has proved difficult to unlearn, but it is demonstrably false. What has punk rock done for us? Did it defeat Reaganism and Thatcherism and end the Cold War? Has it brought us social justice? Did it smash the state? Prevent in any way the 12 years of the imperial Bush dynasty? Galvanize youth? Subvert the dominant paradigm, or for one minute prevent the total commercialization of culture and the chemical digitalization of music that happened under its watch? Did it even produce good art, beyond a few unintentionally hilarious zines and the first-rate performance art of Courtney Love's 25-year disintegration into a caricature of the exact kind of drug-addled, silicon-and-botox-enhanced, vacuous-and-babbling-rich housewife that Riot Girls hated most? No. Unequivocally, no. That, my friend, is a good piece of ranting. (laughs) Uh, And I initial every last thing that that guy says, particularly the feeling that this shift where it's like, we don't need to talk about the art anymore. We're just going to talk about the concept. We don't need to eat steak anymore. We just need to enjoy the sizzle, right? Right. That is the in Chelsea's ultimate expression of marketing. It is the spirit of marketing that has taken over art. Yeah. Yeah. And then those motherfuckers have the nerve. The skinny pants wearing dudes who are going to instruct us on how naive we are for not understanding the theory. They are serving imperialism. Yeah. They don't know it. Because however smart they think they are, they're not smart enough to realize the con that's been played on them and everybody else. Just yesterday, I saw somebody retweeted a
0: tweet. Fuck, I hate that word. By uh, Clay Rutledge. He says, uh, we are living in an era of woke capitalism in which companies pretend to care about social justice
1: to sell products to people who pretend to hate capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) Yes! So such a perfect encapsulation of the logic of our times.
0: Well, that's what happens, I would argue, with any art making which devolves into opining, which I try to technically call artifice in my book. Like if you create an aesthetic object whose point is to deliver a message, you're always delivering the opposite message as well. That's why um, you'll have so many strange sexual innuendos in Disney films that try to, like, cleanse the world of any type of impurity. Right. You know, the only way that you can win against your shadow is by admitting you have a shadow. Right. So, and the only thing that can do that aesthetically is is a symbol, a work of art that... Includes within itself its own opposites. That's right. And this is an example I've mentioned before. Like you compare, it's my favorite example because it's very easy. Compare a book written by a fervent Christian who's trying through his novel to convert you to Christianity. Compare that, which is probably going to be sold in a pharmacy or something, to Dostoevsky's The Idiot, right?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Dostoevsky's a fervent Christian, but He's probably produced as many atheists as he has fervent Christians and probably left a lot more people just in as confused a state as he was willing to admit he was in. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's the difference. But today it seems like taken for granted almost. I mean, the victory of punk and we can just kind of summarize the whole modernist project with that word, uh, in a sense, Uh, the victory of punk. And of uh, okay, let's even translate it once more. The victory of marketing. Over artistic expression is so complete that to say something like what I just said is to risk being called a kind of fascist yeah. um, because then you, you raise all these issues about Eurocentrism or activism or whatever you want to call it this this kind of like privileging of an elite over the common masses all that bullshit. Which is completely beside the point. You become susceptible to these criticisms, made invariably by fools who know nothing at all about art and care less. Right. It was perfect that you opened with that reflection on your experience of listening to Bach,
1: because oh, and can you just imagine like people being like, oh, you don't like punk rock, but you like Bach. Well, y- like, I- I've handed you, the listener at home, a ready-made way to dismiss everything I'm saying. Right. The way you
0: chose to compare your experience of listening to that piece of music was that... And before I say that, I just... Parenthetically, I just wanted to mention that we're not saying that there are no good punk songs or that within the movement called punk, some great songs might not have been written. It's not like we're defending particular traditions against others. It's art can happen anywhere. There's a lot of shitty classical music and there are some good punk songs. Yeah. So that's not the point. We're talking about Theory. Right. And we're talking about what a particular movement or a particular marketing project is telling us. Whereas, in fact, right. art always occurs as a kind of exception to all those things. So it can occur anywhere. But your choice was to just compare the experience of listening to Bach to hugging your kids after they take a bath. You know, they're wrapped up in the towels and you're taking them to bed. And how can you separate that experience, the magic of that experience with the fact that, you know, that they'll grow up and they'll die? Yeah. That's exactly what's going on in that moment where you hold your child. You're basically pantomiming or enacting your feeling of not wanting to let go of something that will pass. You chose to compare it to a grandparent. A grandparent is near death, the grandparent's hugging the child who's coming into being. But of course, the same cycle occurs, and then the child becomes the grandparent. The impermanence, the tragedy of life is expressed every time you hug your child. And that's in Bach too, right? Bach is not just about, oh, feel good. It's not just a kind of like picture of a, of a wild horse you'd hang in your shitty suburban bathroom. <laughs> he, the tragedy's in there. And there's yeah. no room for tragedy in nihilism. <laughs> yeah. Nihilism yeah. is also the rejection of tragedy because it doesn't affirm yes. anything. That's so right. so the affirmation of life includes a kind of realization that that things are passing away. And I think that that's present in all great works of art,
1: whereas it's absolutely absent in the urinal. I, f- I forget who said this, uh, some German, who said that the heart of every real work of art is the word denoch, or nevertheless. Right, right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of something You Devers know, you, you, you hug your child and you know that you are hugging somebody who's going to die. Yeah. And that's bleak as shit. And yet, the work of art, whether it's bubbly and cheerful or whether it's as utterly black and it's emotional chiaroscuro as, I don't know, Mahler's Ninth Symphony, doesn't matter doesn't matter what the emotional complexion of the work is the basic existential stance of the artwork whatever it is towards life is i accept this Mm -hmm. as cruel and unfathomably sad as this is i accept this nevertheless
0: I'm going to read a passage of the end of a speech that Deleuze gave in the 80s to a society of cinematographers, a, a filmmaker's association of sorts in France. He asks, and you know this will be surprising because a lot of people would associate Deleuze with modernism very, very deeply, right. postmodernism. modernism But he, he wasn't that at all. What relationship is there between the work of art and communication? None at all. A work of art is not an instrument of communication. A work of art has nothing to do with communication. A work of art does not contain the least bit of information. In contrast, there is a fundamental affinity between a work of art and an act of resistance. What is this mysterious relationship between a work of art and an act of resistance when the men and women who resist neither have the time nor sometimes the culture necessary to have the slightest connection with art? He says, I don't know. Malraux developed an admirable philosophical concept. He said something very simple about art. He said it was the only thing that resists death. Think about it. What resists death? You only have to look at a statuette from 3,000 years before the Common Era to see that Malraux's response is a pretty good one. I, I just love that passage because what he's saying is that in acknowledging death, art affirms life then we have to ask ourselves how's how the soiled bed you know covered in used condoms and tampons and stuff at the <laughs> the gallery does that and if it does then all the better or whether uh, a certain work is just basically a reaction a kind of reactive outburst meant precisely to pretend that the tragedy isn't real you know meant to banish the fundamentally tragic nature of existence and that's why uh, larkin is so right on when he says that this modern stuff doesn't help you endure
1: that's right you know it's not there's no love in it and the theoretical project to me seems increasingly like a project on epic scale of changing the subject yeah you know if the subject is just our basic existential situation in this world Theory is just a way of making all of that stuff vaporize. And I just think about, like, something that has happened in the humanities. I saw it happening, you know, a quarter century ago when I was in graduate school. You know, you go to graduate school and you're doing a degree in English or you're doing a degree in music history or you're doing a degree in art history or whatever, and... You know, in the 90s, it was a time when all of a sudden the idea of like, okay, what's the stuff that everybody should know? Well, you know, people were beginning to realize, oh, there's not just one literature of, for example, music. I'm just talking about music. There's not just Western art music, a.k.a. classical music. That's not the only art music tradition in the world. You know, Japan has gagaku Music and no drama. India has traditions of improvised music of such extraordinary complexity and sophistication as as to boggle the mind. In literature, you realize, you know, there are literatures all around the world and they all commend the same kind of attention and passion. Okay then all of a sudden when literature becomes a world thing, the old-fashioned scholarly idea of having a fundamental bibliographic control over all of it, being able to command the field of literature, whether it's music literature or whatever, that idea is clearly impossible. Right. And so you're left with an actually a fairly pragmatic question Well, when we give doctoral students their qualifying exams, what should we be asking them about? Or the comprehensive exams? What's the stuff we can assume everybody has read? Increasingly, that stopped being novels and poems, and it became works of cultural theory. Mm. You know, if you're devising a curriculum, you don't want to be the one to say which literature is more important, right? I mean, in fact, you couldn't possibly say such a thing. However, you could be sure that any student read discipline and punish. And so like, right. okay, well that's going to be the, the common denominator. So this happened on the level of curriculum, but it also happened on the effective level among students who found in cultural theory, something like the, the academics dream of having a kind of secret decoder ring, something that would allow them to unlock any text that they would encounter. Yeah, You know, everything would become interpretable. Everything would become fodder for interpretation. If I get my theory right, then if I ever encounter any expressive text, I'll be able to d- decode the shit out of it. Right. 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 And what happened is that people would stop reading poems and novels and they would just read theory. And the idea was, well, I'm reading theory so that if I do read a novel, then I'll know what to do with it. But then that day would never come. Because what am I gonna read next? Right. Another work of cultural theory. Yeah. And I saw this with, you know, some of the more cultural studies-oriented students. Not all of them by any means. And I, I'm not making blanket statements. I've known plenty of pig ignorant traditional scholars as well as profound, learned and sensitive readers among the kind of cultural theory group. I'm talking about tendencies in a rather gross grain sense but already I was seeing people who didn't seem to really care about novels and poems and pieces of music. It just seemed all secondary to them. And here we are a quarter century and it just sort of feels like that theoretical imperative has just eaten the world. Like we don't need art at all anymore because we have theory. All of this is to say what I said, I don't know, five, 10 minutes ago when I started this rant, The so called theoretical turn just seems to me, among other things, a perennial excuse to change the subject. Anything but to actually talk about art and anything but to face the existential condition that art makes inescapable. There's also an irony in that
0: shift, that theoretical shift. And that's the impetus for doing that, as you mentioned, was that we couldn't keep pretending that the Western canon in this or that discipline or tradition had any type of real value, essential value. So we had to recognize that no theater and kabuki exists and, and Indian music exists. So how do you, you can't master all that. So you turn to theory instead. But the problem is that the theory is coming out of the very tradition you're trying to relativize. Exactly. To the side so which nobody ever seems to notice. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. We're still uh, talking about Europeans, Foucault yeah. and Zizek, et etc.
0: Right. Exactly. Fundamentally, you're retaining a kind of Eurocentrism. Uh, however, these are Europeans who railed against European culture. So it's kind of this uh, this self-hating thing that allows you to have your cake and eat it too. You still mm. get to be the center, but you yep. hate it therefore it's okay. And again, it's just like that quote, living in a, an era of woke capitalism in which companies pretend to care about social justice to sell products to people who pretend to hate capitalism. Yeah. You're, you're still maintaining the whole structure. You're just changing your content to appease your conscience. Whereas in fact, if you were to come down to it, you're perpetuating the same colonial move
1: that your forebearers were doing. So where do we go from there? Well, I'm going to say one thing, which is for that earlier, that first generation, the the Foucaults and the Lacans and the Derrida's and so on, they were reacting against a kind of force-feeding of official high European culture that I think would turn you and me into bomb-throwing anarchists. Like, it's worth trying to reconstruct historically the context of the extraordinarily joy-killing, scholastic approach to art that those thinkers would have been afflicted with in their upbringing. So they want to dynamite the edifice. They had good reasons to want to dynamite the edifice. Absolutely. People who are now like in their 20s, their experience could not be more different. Right. And they want to be part of this project of destroying this tradition. Well, it's real easy To destroy a tradition you have absolutely no investment in. Ask them if they would feel quite so comfortable destroying something they actually knew something about and loved. Like, say, hip-hop. Right. You know, and I love hip-hop. I fucking love hip-hop. To me, great hip-hop is great art. In exactly the same way that Bach is. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, the style is totally different. It's a totally different medium. But if we're getting down to brass tacks and saying, like, yeah, but, like... What I'm interested in asking is, is it doing the art thing? Right. Doing the art thing is what we're talking about. It is this art that allows you to endure. When I listen to Ready to Die by Biggie Smalls, for example, like that is art to me that touches that heavy heavy thing the idea that we would be like yeah well you know it's all just a cultural narrative and it's bullshit anyway and we're going to throw this all over the side would rightly seem an appalling act of cultural vandalism i just want people to understand that you know once you get past the sociological terms of like well which culture is making that and do they have privilege and blah 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 you know Whatever, I'm not saying that all of those questions are uninteresting or unimportant. But once you get past it, it's just like, there is a fundamental identity of art. Past all of the profound differences in technique and approach in aesthetics and material and medium and the outlook of the artist and the critical discourse in which these artworks are embedded. I recognize all of that stuff. But there is a mystical core that they all participate in.
0: Yeah, and that's what the painters of Lascaux were doing. That's right, exactly. And but, you can look at those paintings and you can touch that. Right. Just as you can in the great hip-hop song or in a great piece by Bach. That's the transcendent power of art. To affirm that in any way is problematic. Um, to say right. that there is some kind of mystical, objective thing going on in art is problematic. Benjamin brings that up. Remember his uh, when we talked about the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction – At the very beginning, Benjamin distinguishes two forms of value in the work of art, and those correspond to the Marxist categories use and exchange value. He says works of art started off having ritual value, and then they gained exhibition value. A work of art has these two types of values, which, of course, Benjamin, being a materialist, sees as purely illusory, in a sense. He sees real value only in exhibition value, which is a strange reversal of the Marxist Correspondence, because in Marxism, use value is more or less objective. That's the actual use of a commodity, whereas exchange value is just what capitalism determines to be its worth. Uh, right. But Benjamin very tellingly reverses that. He says exhibition value, which is the equivalent of exchange value, is actually objective because that's the message the work transmits. Its exhibition value will determine the the spread of its message, Right. Of its revolutionary message, if it's a revolutionary works of art, because what Benjamin's trying to do in that essay is to appropriate art or to enlist it into his revolutionary project. Whereas ritual value is what primitive people believed art did, which is that it had some kind of intrinsic power. So mm-hmm. the painters of Lascaux would paint their pictures in areas that no one would access. Sometimes mm-hmm. maybe no one would ever see them, but that made them more powerful, much like in modern magic when you do a sigil work, you, you draw a sigil, you create a little artwork, and then you hide it, you never look at it. and the, In fact, no one must see it for it to work. The art yeah. is working if it's not exhibited. This thing, this mystical core we're talking about, I think is something like what Benjamin calls ritual value, that when you bring a picture into the world or a melody a work of art, when you bring in a symbol, i.e. into the world, something changes. It's not just you and your buddies or your audience. Something changes cosmically. Something new has come into being. Some new face of the symbol has been shown. Some new manifestation of an archetype, to put it in union terms. The world is not the same. That There's something going on in a, a real work of art which has a theoretically measurable effect on the way things go and that is i think the only way we could save art from this nihilism that has overrun it is to recover its magical
1: potentiality its magical agency
0: Um, you know what though
1: what at the end of the day you know you say what we can do to save art art doesn't need us to save it right you know Art doesn't need us to save it. I'm almost tempted to say art doesn't need us. Oh, yeah, I, I would agree with that, definitely. Remember you that know? line
0: I wrote? One of the things that people ask me about the most about reclaiming art is that moment where I say, like, humanity didn't invent art, art invented humanity. Yeah, I believe... One of my favorite lines yeah. in that book. That's that. I think that's a true statement. I didn't mean that rhetorically or as a kind of flourish. I think it's true. I think it's true. Um, if you look at the evolution of cave painting, the oldest cave paintings we have, the Chauvet Cave, the human figures come very late in the process. Yeah. Slowly, you can see the human being emerge from the series of artworks that are produced in there. So I think that art, in that, that old imitative theory of art where art is a mirror, it certainly is a mirror for us because it is in the mirror of art that we recognize our faces And in recognizing our faces, to quote again Roger Scruton, maybe we saw something like the face of God.
1: Yep. I keep thinking of a figure that's come up repeatedly in our conversations, the 2001 space monolith. It's like, and you know, art is the 2001 space monolith. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it's capable of. We don't know where it's from. We don't know why it's here. But it's there. It is immutably, indisputably there. It is there beyond any power of rationalization to kind of wave away. And it makes human beings human beings. The monkeys clambering around it, touching it, hooting at it. They don't know what it is, but it transforms them. The, to me, is just like I can't think of a better metaphor for what art is it's a space monolith and if you think that you understand it because some fucking book of theory told you something about it if you think you understand it because some class you took in college explained to you that it's really all about domination and power or whatever the fuck you don't know shit from shinola sorry i've been swearing so much i don't know why i'm so aggressive that's okay it's a nice change Our last one was very sedate, so. Yeah, I know. We've been getting just a little too genteel. You know, it's (laughs) funny. It's just like, I, I the older I get, the less I give a shit about things. There are fewer and fewer things I give a shit about. But the one thing I give more and more of a shit about with every passing year is art. Just
0: picking up on that comparison with the Black Monolith. I was reminded while you were talking about that, I'm going back now to when I was writing Reclaiming Eret, obviously, Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Nobel lecture. I just think it's one of the most brilliant documents of the 20th century. Think what you will of Solzhenitsyn and his uh, proto-fascist beliefs or whatever the fuck. He was a brilliant man who almost single-handedly toppled the Soviet Empire, really, when you think about it. So in his Nobel lecture, he describes a primitive human finding some strange object in the wilderness some piece of technology and looking at it turning it this way and that and trying to figure out what it is he says so also we holding art in our hands confidently consider ourselves to be its masters boldly we direct it we renew reform and manifest it we sell it for money we use it to please those in power but art is not defiled by our efforts neither does it thereby depart from its true nature but on each occasion and in each application, it gives us a part of its secret inner light. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.